Hey, I'm Bethany Dawson and welcome to My Classic Soul, a podcast dedicated to the best soul and R&B music throughout the decades. A few weeks ago, friend of the podcast and soulmusic.com founder, David Nathan, had the opportunity to head to Los Angeles and speak with a few special guests. David's first guest is an A&R specialist who has worked for various major labels over the past 15 years. Today, Deron Bowers joins David to talk about an artist they both have great love for, Miss Anita Baker. So, let's join David and Deron direct from Los Angeles to talk about all things Anita Baker. This is the soulmusic.com podcast. I'm Deron Bowers, um, and I'm here speaking with David Nathan, and we are here to talk about the classic masterpiece that is Rapture from Anita Baker. Absolutely, absolutely. And it follows up a little bit from our previous podcast where we did, I know, touch upon uh, different artists from the 80s and who began, whose careers really began to uh, take off at that time. And I believe we did touch upon uh, a little bit about Rapture at that time, but I'm not sure. I can't remember if we did or not. But anyway, let's just continue from there. Okay. All right. So Rapture. Yes. Release date was March 20th, 1986. Wow. And that was kind of that one that was a a drop dead date but what was so crazy about that date that album that time and the lead single was sweet love yeah people kind of knew about anita baker but the bomb of that album Mm -hmm. where it just set off and it was just so internationally accepted she won um her first grammy from Mm -hmm. that album Mm -hmm. and it was something that people just fell in love with as if she was always there but she was kind of always there. And just a little bit before we get there, mm-hmm. I want to talk about the first time that a lot of people fell in love with that voice. And it was kind of what my generation called an underground, but it was kind of an underground R&B hit called I Just Want to Be a Girl yeah. from a group she was in with Chapter, chapter 8. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. So tell me and your sense of you being the writer that you are, and especially at that time. Yes, the effect of hearing that, then going into songstress and then right. rapture hitting in, in a quick snapshot. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I mean, to be really honest, I was aware of Chapter 8. Uh, I, I, in fact, I'm, let me think of it. That was 1979. And I'm thinking, where was I living in 19—I was living in New York at the time. And I was, uh, at that time, the U.S. correspondent editor, U.S. editor for Blues and Soul based in New York. I don't have a lot of recall on the song. I, I, I heard it on the radio. Um, as I said, I lived in, in, in New York at the time, so I'm pretty much sure I heard it on WBLS, which is called the main radio, one of the main R&B urban, well, we called it back then. It was just a radio station I listened to. Um, I don't recall doing any kind of an interview or anything around Chapter 8. I would have to go back and check. I just remember, and I, what I remember about the song this is probably going to make you laugh. I remember the end of the song because you can hear Anita really kind of Hit that prominently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a note at the end of the song, and I do remember that because I was like, "Oh, whoa, okay, all right." And then I didn't really follow much what happened after that until uh, you know the song until Songstress, the Songstress album, and um, at that point I was living in Los Angeles, and I remember. Uh, also, again, hearing it on the radio, I didn't do any. I, I don't. I, of course, that came out on Beverly Glen right. at the time, uh, which is an independent record label. And I don't know that. In fact, I know I, I didn't do any press or we didn't do any interviews around uh, around that release. Uh, and um, 
I heard the song that I heard most um, on the radio from Songstress. Actually, it was of course it was Angel, but the the other one was uh, No More Tears. Yeah, that was the one I heard, and I and I remember being struck by the by her voice and and, and how it wasn't. Uh, it was very distinct. It wasn't, uh, when I say a, not a regular R&B voice, I mean, I'm, what I mean is, yeah, it was, it, it just had other elements in it that didn't, her phrase, Anita's phrasing, her, just her approach to the, to the songs, just made it be like, wow, who is this? Now, I, re- I didn't, I remember she did perform uh, at a place called the Beverly Theater in Los Angeles, Around the time of the of, of songstress, but I, for whatever reason, didn't go. I don't. I don't remember the circumstances of it. Uh, I just remember that it was, in many ways, you mentioned underground. I think, you know, songstress and and, and the, the songs from there, no more tears and and angel were also you know kind of underground in terms of they they did achieve some notoriety and some uh, recognition on the R and B charts, but of course not in any way like crossing over to pop or, you know, it was very, um, and she was, and here's what I can add to that. I remember because I lived in Los Angeles at the time, Anita was really very uh, embraced by particularly the Los Angeles audiences. Yes. I, I remember that very vividly. And uh, I do have a, a short um, anecdote which comes from when she and I first met. Uh, which was a time of rapture, but but I want to share it with you because it's relevant to songstress. Um, when she and I did uh, meet uh, in in nineteen eighty six to do our interview for Rapture, uh, that was the beginning of us doing several interviews over the fo- years that followed. And at one point, I remember I was uh, on my way to do an interview with her, and uh, I called and said, oh, I'm, "I'm running late. I'm just waiting for the bus." <laughs> because I didn't drive in L.A. And she said, which number? And I can't remember the... I, I want to say the number, but I can't remember. Was it, I think it was the 212. There you go. It came right back to me. She said, the 212. I said, yeah. She said, I used to take the 212. I said, well, wh- when did you take the 212? She said, I used to take it um, when I was recording the songstress. Wow. I was out here in L.A. Because she didn't live here at the time. She was... Uh, still living in in, in Detroit, right. and she came out to do that album. Mm-hmm. And if you know much about Anita's history and you know what she's talked about in interviews, she did not. Uh, she she had to really be persuaded to come out and do that because she had been you know with Chapter Eight and and and, and working with the same company with Beverly Glenn, mm-hmm. and she was quite reluctant. But anyway, she said, "Yeah, I used to." She lived at the Oakwood Apartments in Burbank, hmm. and used to take the bus. And so that it sounds funny, but that kind of bonded us. That that she had been on the same bus. I was like, "Wow!" And we just ch- yeah, it was just a funny moment. But anyway, go back to songs. Just I kind of diverted a little bit. Um, um, I, I often wonder, actually, just to say one more thing about that. I often wonder if. Um, if in retrospect the passengers on the 212 um, had known who, who when she was on the bus who she would become, right. you know what I mean? But um, 
Yes. So, so I just, I, I unfortunately, again, didn't see her perform in person around the time of the songstress. But I do remember it really did. It, it was, it just really did hit a certain um, kind of, I don't say no, but it, it, it hit a, a kind of something that wasn't in the marketplace already. Do you know what I mean? There, I know was, what you a, mean. there was nothing. You, when I listened to her, I couldn't. There wasn't anybody to say, oh, she sounds like, right. or she's, oh, this is in the tradition of, or this is like so-and-so. And I think that uniqueness is really what um, contributed to the then success afterwards of, with, with, with Rapture. Yeah, I think when, and we spoke about this before, that wave that was around, I want to say, 84, 85, 86, you were going from disco to the synthesized age into what became soul music at that time because it was, um, I think, leading that wave was Whitney Houston. Mm-hmm. And um, yes. she had came out with her self-titled album that year before. Mm-hmm. Um, Luther Vandross was killing it at that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Donna Summer was killing it at the time, but it was more pop than R&B. Right, yeah. And matter of fact, around that same time, that's when she did the Quincy Jones self-titled that's right. album. That's right. And yeah. then yeah. come March 86, also, I'm sorry, and Levert was out at yes, that time yes, as well. Yes, yes, yes. Then 86 comes this album with this woman with this black dress Mm-hmm. Sitting on the floor, mm-hmm. looking at you in a hey kind of way, and <laughs> a hey kind of way, in a hey kind of way with this sweet love record. And you're right about the Los Angeles thing because when I was young, I was nine years old when that album came out. Okay, but it was played out of every radio, every car, mm-hmm. every house, mm-hmm. and I thought she was from LA because it did mm-hmm. kind of have that well, yeah. feel. It was yeah. just it was an album that. And and I do say album because every song on it, me being nine, I thought every song was the single because you would hear those mm-hmm. songs at different times from Been So Long to Mystery. Wow. All these songs were played as if they were the single. Yeah. So kind of talk about mm-hmm. when, after you had the interview, because you had the interview, I'm pretty sure it was a promo kind of interview to yeah. promote the yeah. album. Yeah. After you had that interview mm-hmm. and it exploded, kind of, Describe how the marketplace was at that time with that. Well, before I do that, uh, Doran, mm-hmm. I just like to set up a little bit about what happened in that interview. Uh, it is a funny story, and I, and I may have shared it with you. I don't know. If I, I think I may have shared it at different times. So the the thing was, I hadn't because I hadn't seen Anita f- in person before. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even know if I'd seen the artwork for Rapture. I, I can't remember. I had heard it because they sent me a promo copy. They probably had seen I don't know. I, I don't recall seeing the finished album cover. But here's what I can tell you. I, you know, I went up to the Electra offices um, at that time in Los Angeles on Sunset Boulevard. I think the same building as Atlantic offices, if I remember correctly. And, uh, you know, I went in, you know, so I'm here to do an interview with Anita Baker. And the publicist met me and said, okay, we'll just, you know, go to this room. And, um, and I was in the room and, and, and uh, this woman walked in and, and said, um, she said, hello. I, I said, oh, uh, she, she, I said, oh, I'm, I'm here to um, do an interview with Anita Baker. And she said, well, I'm Anita. And I said, you, are you? Really? And, and, and why I said really was because, you know, Anita's not a tall, you know, big woman. You know, she was short and, 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 and petite. And I thought, 
I said, really? And she said, yeah. I said, well, I don't want to be rude because I've never met her before. I said, but I expected, I was expecting, you know, someone who's like this big, you know, big kind of like, because your voice is like really big. And I thought you would be like a big person. And she laughed. She said, no, I'm Alita. So, you know, that was a good way to like break the ice. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, she shared with me at the beginning of the, you know, we started talking about the making of Rapture and, so on, she talked about how, um, you know, she, she had signed to Electra and there were different producers that had been suggested and people that she had met with um, that were being considered to produce her first album. And um, ultimately she, she said, you know, I, I, I want to work with Michael J. Powell, who, of course, had been there in Chapter 8. And... Um, and as I recall, you know, it was it was uh, she shared that it was you know, challenging for for her to get them to sign on to that because, you know, he wasn't a known quantity as a producer. You know what I'm saying? In other words, the other, some of the other people she'd been talking to were like names. You yeah. Know? And the thing that I loved about that and I loved about what she said then was that she was very much she was very clear about who she was in the matter of her own music. In other words, what I mean by that is she wasn't going to just compromise and just do whatever everyone might have thought she would do, but she was very much, she was clear about um, wanting to be very, very much involved with all aspects of the record, not just, well, I'm just going to come and sing and the producer's going to tell me what to do. Right. It wasn't that kind of situation, which, you know, with, that, with respect to some of the other artists that you, you just mentioned, a lot of times they weren't as invested creatively in their projects. Yes. And so that was great. And, 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 then, and then, of course, as you said, uh, the one other thing I want to mention in that interview when, when we talked about, I don't know if we talked about it then. Oh, yeah, we did. I, th I think it was that she referenced that um, maybe it was afterwards, but it, the bottom line is when, when Rapture began to really, really take hold, um, she credited, um, Sade, the artist Sade and the group Sade mm -hmm. having broken through the previous year uh, internationally and, and being played on American, uh, on US radio as being the kind of like the gave her it was like okay if if, Shard, if that can happen then i can do this because there was really nothing like Sade either before Sade. right and anita i'm not saying that they sounded like they didn't but there were elements of the kind of fusion of of, of jazzy r&b flavored i mean it was all very you know and the, it was just very unique mm-hmm and I think that's really what it was. It was like there's nobody I could, no one could compare Anita to a, to, to another singer at that point. I mean, their influences, yeah, but you know, there are other singers that follow a particular tradition, and you can see, you can hear the, you can hear the kind of influence in their voice, right? Um, and it's kind of like, oh, this one is some. You know, people make comparisons to. Yeah, people you can all draw the, the lineage to the artist. Yeah, yeah. And people make it. comparisons all the time. Right. And I think the one thing that was really challenging is no one could compare Anita to any. You couldn't say, well, oh, she sounds like, oh, she's because there was no sound like that was. She was unique, and there are only 
really, honestly, if we think back in the history of R&B and soul music, there's only a certain number of artists who are so unique and distinct that when their music comes on, you don't wonder who that is. That's Once they've true. established themselves, you don't wonder. So, well, is that so-and-so? Oh, no, that could be. No. The thing that I think captured people... Oh, I'm going to say something. I'm, I'm going to get poetic now. I think the thing that captured people with rapture... Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right, David, tap on, the, tap on the shoulder there. Captured people with rapture was... It was distinct and unique, and it was not like something else. I agree with that. I think me being nine, then me being 19, then me being 29... And so on. It's an album that stood the test of time where um, even if you talk to her today, she's so surprised mm -hmm. on how young the audience is that comes out to see her. Mm -hmm. And I think because she didn't fold with producers she wasn't comfortable with, with the sound she wasn't comfortable with. Mm -hmm. It traveled. It it traveled mm -hmm, through mm -hmm. time, and it still has that substance to it. Mm. And um, there's very, I agree with you, there's very, very few artists like that, not only with the voice, but with the music. Yeah. And I think the Sade um, link comes in is because Sade's another one, where Sade cuts out an album once every hundred years. And, but <laughs> well, when she does... Well, not a hundred, but I get, I get <laughs> it. Almost. I get and, it. <laughs> but when she comes out, it goes number one. Yeah. She has a number one single. Yeah. She sells out every major arena in every mm -hmm. city mm -hmm. because it just keeps going. Her greatest hits still is consistently good. Yeah. The yeah. album still sounds. And it's because they were very true to their roots. Sade was um, with the jazz and the African mm -hmm. sounds mm -hmm. and all those things. And they took it and made this thing. So I think she took that and was like, okay, so I can be comfortable in my jazz mm -hmm. background too. Mm -hmm. And put that into the album, mixed it with R&B and just changed everything. Absolutely. Well, I want to ask you a question. Yes, sir. You know, so you, you mentioned about you know being nine and growing up in Detroit. So, so a couple of questions I have for you. Firstly, mm -hmm. um, yeah, how did the Detroit, how did Detroit audiences respond on radio and and just and when she started to perform there? Uh, okay, okay. Yes. Uh, all right. Sorry. I see what you're saying. No, no problem. <laughs> I can tell you with L.A. Mm -hmm. the record was so big and I, I can give you a real good comparison mm -hmm. Barry White Barry White yeah. is from LA yeah he's from Compton or Watts if I'm not mistaken and it's one of those things where people to this day with um rest in peace Kobe Bryant yeah you're from here you work for us you your family that's what that record felt like it mm. felt like a record that was of L.A. at that time. Yeah. And mind you, we were, what, 10, 15 years removed from, almost 20 years removed from the jazz renaissance that was in L.A. on yeah. Central Avenue. Yeah. So I think a lot of people resonate with that. Mm -hmm. um, the clubs and the real big thing that was happening back then was the um, Budweiser Superfest. Yeah. Yes. I remember those. And <laughs> she, that, that was another thing where all our local artists played that. Yeah. And... She was playing on KJLH uh -huh. and, the, and, and all those stations at that time so hard mm. that it just, she felt like an L.A. artist. I had no idea she wasn't an L.A. Yeah. artist. And when I hear that, especially being here in Rhino now, yeah. and I talk to um, my U.K. colleagues here and they tell me, yeah, 
Um, I'm a rock fan, but I remember when Rapture came out. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah you know, Explain that one to me. Well, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I, I can't really give you a, 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 a potted explanation. I can say that, you know, a couple of things. I can firstly say that um, um, the, you know, traditionally British audiences have been, uh, you know, very receptive. Yeah, and we talked, talked about, about that before, as well. Yes. To, to different strands of R&B, soul music and jazz. Uh, over the years and very loyal. Um, I I have to be honest with you, I would not have expected that Rapture would have been so en- enormously well-received in Britain and outside the U.S., but it was, and which is a testament to how good it was. It just really, I mean, it sold 8 million copies globally, yes. 4 million here in the U.S. and 4 million outside the U.S., and that's as a... It's really unheard of for essentially Anita. I mean, yes, we talk about the songstress, but really she was a, that was for most people her first album. Yes. They didn't know there was the songstress before. Right. So I think that um, it's a a testament to the quality of the music. I mean, you can tell if you start looking, not not just listening to the music, but if you look at the lineup, or the who who the musicians involved, you know, like top top stellar, you know, uh, session guys here in LA, you know, the the the, the background vocals, everything about and the choice of songs, I mean, you can tell that if I'm correct, there's eight songs on there. Yes. Yeah, and they, they you can tell they were like really. Select. It wasn't just like, oh, let's find eight songs. There, and you know, the thing is, uh, it's so funny as we talk about that album. I just have just so many great memories of the music. I mean, uh, uh, but a uh, uh, few things. I mean, my personal favorite song on there has was and always will be "Been So Long." Mm. I just thought that was just like the, you know what? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was just the mm-hmm, because it was. It really was. I think we talk about Sade and we talk about other people, but, you know, really that was for me the first track that I can remember that really did give me that whole jazz, you know, that whole, it was like bringing in that element and it was yes. so unlike anything. And I loved it. I loved it. I mean, that's still, I mean, I can hear it in my head. It's a know? song that if it had been eight minutes and 53 seconds and had two solos in it, you would still love it the exact same mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because it, it sounded like it was a song that was probably about 10 or 11 minutes. Mm-hmm. And it was like, okay, all right, cool. Everyone have fun. We need to narrow this down. Right. That's what it sounds. That's how good it sounds. Yeah, and yeah. it, again, me being nine, it introduced me to jazz vocalists because also at that time, mm-hmm. Diane Reeves yes, was very yes, strong at yes. that time. Just but Diane through, Reeves yeah, 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 was yeah, a yeah. jazz yes, um, solo yes, or yes, vocalist yes. more than she was an R&B one. And I think... With Anita, who loved Diane Reeves, who loved Sade, who um, you also had Phyllis Hyman around that Absolutely. time. You had a lot of artists who had that. But with Anita, with her dedication to the musicianship mm-hmm. of it, to still wanting to be current because mm-hmm. she was younger at that time, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, not wanting to do the dance thing, but still make it where it was at least um, <laughs> cha-cha-able. Yeah. She, she made a record that, was very unique and stood out on his own for everything that was out, which, again, you had Whitney selling tens of millions of records, Mm -hmm. and Anita was still right there with her Mm -hmm. with an album that was really that strong. Like, I 
I am a core R&B person, mm-hmm. but the album that people always talk about when it comes to her, the first thing that a rock fan, a pop fan, a jazz mm-hmm. fan, a folk fan, they mention Rapture. And yeah. that tells you uh, Carol King is one of the greatest songwriters of all time. Mm. They mentioned Tapestry. And to me, that was her tapestry. That was her off the wall. That was mm-hmm. that was her defining moment. And what was so great about it is sold the records it did and won the awards it did. Mm. She continued that quality album. She continued it throughout the rest of her career yeah. with the um, the next album that came after that, giving you the best of what I got. Oh, that was yeah. a two years oh, later. Wow. And then the album after that, Compositions, yeah, which was wow. two years later. Yes, yes. And she not only did she keep it, but as successful as those albums were that came after Rapture, mm. she dwelled more into the jazz ring. Then she yeah. started working with George Duke. Yeah. And she she's, her, she went more into her writing bag with her pen of mm-hmm. just poetry almost. And yes. she, in three albums all the way up to 90, so from 86 to 90 in four years, established herself as a career artist in four years. Yeah, and with three albums. With three albums, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, and then they... um. Electra went and they re-released Songstress right yes. before Giving You the Best came out. Yes. And um, they did a new cover, re-released it, and people fell in love with that again. And during the Sound Scan mm-hmm. era, which was 91, mm-hmm. that album has sold 300,000 copies. Wow. So that just shows you the quality and what she put into what she does and the mm-hmm. passion that she has. Mm-hmm. It bleeds into those tracks. It bleeds into those albums. And if you ever want to question where she's at just you can just pick up rapture and you will not lose focus going into the rest of that record well let me just add a little ps because i can't you mentioned about the re-release of uh of um the songstress you know through electra and i was very um honored and really honored to be able to write the new liner notes for that when it came out so that you know that was my opportunity to just share my appreciation and 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 really to 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 listen back to songstress to the songstress again myself mm-hmm. because you know you can't write liner notes for a CD if you're not going to really get into the music right and it really was so I was thrilled at that I had the opportunity to do that we're going to take a quick break but please stay tuned because we will be right back Now available for pre-order exclusively at soulmusic.com, the 50th anniversary edition of First Take, Roberta Flack's 1969 debut album for Atlantic Records. First Take has been remastered and expanded to a two-CD, one-LP box set, featuring the original eight-track album plus 16 bonus tracks. First Take is a beautiful soul-jazz hybrid that includes the number one hit song, The First Time Ever I Saw Your Face, and includes famous jazz luminaries such as Ron Carter, Benny Powell, and Selden Powell as sidemen. Featured in the 1971 Clint Eastwood movie Play Misty For Me, the popularity of The First Time Ever I Saw Your Face helped drive her debut album to number one on both the Billboard album chart and the R&B album chart. Newly remastered and expanded, this deluxe 50th anniversary edition includes 16 bonus tracks, 12 of which are previously unreleased, totaling nearly an hour of never-before-heard Roberta Flack music. 
Also included in this deluxe set is the original vinyl album, newly remastered and pressed on 140-gram vinyl. It's accompanied with a detailed essay by noted soul historian David Nathan, all beautifully packaged in a 12 by 12 hardback book. Roberta Flack's first take, the 50th anniversary edition, is now available for pre-order exclusively at soulmusic.com. I, I, there are two things that, that in particular, Sweet Love, I mean, to, to this day, I, I mean, if that song comes on the radio, I mean, it's still got everything, you know, the, the, the hook, everything. Song is just a brilliant song, a brilliant song. And, um, but I, if I think about, as I did, if I think about every track on that album, I can't, couldn't think of anything that wasn't just great yeah. and, 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 and the way it was sequenced I mean sometimes people forget that you know when when an artist when you have a project and, and, and particularly you think about Rapture however that was sequenced and I'm, I know Anita was involved in the sequencing of it uh, and she was as, as I recall involved in every aspect of it like she was at the mixing session she was I mean she was really like hands on involved and I will say, as a as a as a fellow Aquarian, <laughs> I understand that. Right. <laughs> but you know, to really be, you know, it's not just oh, I just go in and sing. I write a couple of songs, and you all deal with the rest. Right. I mean, that's you know, really, that's being really, really involved in and in, in really because this is your work, and this is you know what's going to go out in the world. And you know, I'll say a couple of things. You know that again, there wasn't a song on, and the way that it was sequenced. You wanted to hear the rest of the album. We have to remember this is the time of albums. It wasn't just, you know, we weren't in the whole. We, we, we were in a different era. Like right. It was the physical album. Right. You know what I mean? Yes. So how you played it was in the sequence that it was in, and then flipped it over, and so it was just really very, very careful. I can tell it was carefully thought through. And I can't think of a single song on there that I don't like. I mean, I really, really... But I will tell you, I want to say one more, one more thing, Duran, which, is, which will hopefully make you smile. So one of the things that many people do when they love music, and this may be true of you too, sing along with the songs. Right. Right? Right? Now, I um, was started doing that as a teenager, which was long before you were a teenager, <laughs> and used to try to wrap my very then British vocal cords around some very difficult things back in the 60s. And, you know, I, I love singing. I love singing. I absolutely love it. And I, I told Anita, and, and I credited her with this, I, when I wanted to sing along with some of those songs, I had to discover the bottom part of my vocal range mm -hmm. because... I used to sing up there because some of the singers I like sang up there. And then I suddenly started singing down there. And I'm like, oh, I can actually sing from there. And I told her, I said, you actually helped me discover that I actually could be a baritone, which I didn't. <laughs> I mean, because you could, I couldn't, the songs didn't work if I tried to sing. So, so I, I, I used to, I remember telling her that and just, it was funny, but, but, she, but, but, but the whole point is that that she there wasn't another voice. I guess the point I'm making, in a very roundabout way, is there wasn't another voice. I mean, who, uh, uh, another popular voice of that time, 
that sounded like that. We met, we referenced Sade, and we, you know, we, and Whitney Houston, different vocal range, different sound. Right. I mean, but there, it, there was no, but, and I think that that still remains true. And I think what, what uh, allowed Anita the opportunity to have the kind of success and uh, and consistency and continuity was that there was a sound, and then the giving you the best that I got came out, and I that song, still, that song. Still, I just think it's a brilliant song. I mean, brilliant, brilliant, loved it. And it, it's, you know, if you think about the other songs that were around at the time, other re- singles and when, when the single came out, there wasn't anything even remotely like it. I mean, I wish we had the chart from the year, like the, 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 the top. There was nothing even you could even say. Oh, I mean, it was unique. But the 88, that was the year where hip-hop became dominant and New Jack Swing started mm-hmm, coming. Mm-hmm. So I think on her same label, Key Sweat was a year removed from Make It Last mm-hmm, Forever. Mm-hmm. That was the year Guy's album came out. Wow, the New wow. Edition Heartbreak album came wow. out. Yeah. And out of everyone getting in a dancing mood, mm-hmm. you had this very beautiful piano solo having oh, record wow. that just cut through all of that. And people still... It, was, it wasn't sales-wise successful, as Rapture, because but it was still very successful. Yeah. She was nominated for album of the year yeah. for that album, yeah. and I think song a record of the year for yeah. that album. Yeah. And it was it was just one of those records that cut through mm. and just made it. And that's um, I have a coworker here, um, friend Dana, yeah. that loves Priceless, the opening track. Yes, yes. And yes. she said yes. um, she saw her when she did the Greek here yes. um, last year, yes. and she she said she was crossing her fingers like, please do Priceless, do please please do Priceless. She said everyone was looking at her crazy, like Priceless. She has all these songs. She said, uh-huh. and when she did it, she almost cried because yeah. she said when she first heard that album and she pushed play, mm. that song just really did something for her, and she. When I talked to her, that was one of her favorite songs. Yeah. Anita's one of her favorite songs is Priceless off that album. Yeah. So it was one of those albums where it was just, if Rapture was very soulful and very jazz, very jazzy, but very moody, like mm-hmm, Night, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. giving you the best that I got would be, if that was Night, it was Daytime. Yeah, and it was that. it was like a and even the cover. Beach if you look thing. at the cover, yes, yeah. it was very light, yeah, and the yeah. song sounded like that. To lead me into love. Well, you know, my favorite. I, I would tell you, my my favorite is actually the the one that's not quite like that, and and, and it won't take you too it won't take you too long to guess. Uh, but my favorite song. I mean, I love giving you the best that I got. It probably isn't the favorite song from there, but the one that got me every time was good love. I knew you were going to say that. I mean, I want to know what good love is But good like. good love kind of takes you a little bit to where it's been so long. Exactly. It's, it's like, it's exactly. like been so long sister. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. And, 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 and that's a that's a song. I mean, that's a... Oof. She has one of those because then let's go to Compositions. Mm-hmm. The similar record to that and God Bless His Soul, Gerald LeVert was Whatever It Takes. Yes. Whatever It Takes was the sister to those two yeah. records. Yeah. So it's... it's she had a formula without having a formula where yeah. she, she went in knowing who she was. She didn't want to sacrifice who she was and she wanted to make sure that all of that emotion and everything she was thinking was on tape. Mm-hmm. And that's what made her album so great. But that's what Rapture, they, they say, because she, even though Songstress wasn't you touched on, she had to catch the bus. She went through mm-hmm. things she went through during Songstress, but she considers Rapture her first album. Yeah. There's a saying that 
artists go through, when artists make their first album, they took their whole life to make it. Yeah. And so they take their whole life and put it into their first album. Mm -hmm. And you can hear that in there. Mm -hmm. You can feel, you can hear that all her inspiration, all her influences, all the things she ever said, probably when she was 11 years old, like, oh, mm -hmm. when I do this, mm -hmm. this is what I'm going to do. It was in that album. Yeah. And she just, if she, if she did take a formula, which it doesn't sound like she did, she but did. if she did, she, I would say the formula is just being true to herself and putting it on tape. Yeah, and that's the best formula you can have yes. being an artist like that in what some people consider a synthesized artificial decade. Yeah. She made some of the realest soul music in that decade. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, I, I, I had the opportunity to see her several times perform in, in that time period. Mm -hmm. uh, the two concerts that stay out, well, in particular stay most vividly, vividly in my mind, is uh, having seen her uh, after Rapture, at the Beverly Theater, the same Beverly Theater I mentioned, mm -hmm. um, which was, of course, a much, a, the old, I mean, it was packed. Yeah. And, and, and Beverly Theater was not a big place. I mean, it, didn't, it wasn't like a stadium. I, mean, I don't know how many people there held, but it wasn't really massive. And uh, I remember doing that. And I, one of the, it's funny, uh, it's funny how things that stay in your mind. I mean, because she was doing mostly songs from Rapture, but she did do a few things from Songstress. She did No More Tears, and I think she did... Um, uh, Angel, I'm sure she did Angel, and then, but the thing I remember also, she would occasionally include other people's songs, and the song that I remember her doing during that show was a song associated with the emotions called Blessed. Yes, and it was like wow, and she also worked with a, a, an amazing uh, group of female uh, singers who are sisters, the Perry sisters. Who of yeah, course went I remember on to, Perry. Yeah, yeah. Who went on to, you know, make their own albums. And yes. So on. So it was beautiful, and, and then and then I saw her open. She was a special guest opening for Smokey Robinson at the Greek Theater. Okay, I remember that too. That was also in the same time period. Um, and I'm going to say something because I think it's necessary to say. You know, I mentioned about Anita being like a, a fellow Aquarian and being like, "Is you know, it's got to be right?" Yeah. And uh, so she did something that some people were, were like, well, why did she do that? You know, would stop the show if the sound wasn't right. And she did that on that Smokey Robinson show, which was kind of almost unheard of that the she was a special guest, but she, of course, came on before Smokey Robinson. So it was kind of like unusual for the person before the headliner right. to come to, 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 stop, to stop for a moment. And if I remember, and my memory has to really go to this, that I think she actually went to the soundboard and said, you know, we need to do this, or whatever she did. And people were like, whoa. And I remember asking her, uh, not particularly uh, about that, uh, that, that, you know, she had done that on a few shows, and why. And the quote she gave me stayed, has stayed with me ever since. And I think it's really uh, important um, as, and also a testament to her concern and interest in making sure her audience got what they came for and that they got that they they paid their hard-earned money mm -hmm. and they want the show and that ethic of being an artist who is really committed that their audience gets what they came from for is an old ethic in show business or music but it isn't always it hasn't always been true of other generations that have come since or even of generations that came before so she said this to me she said here's the thing when i go out there and i'm in front of the audience 
if something isn't right with the sound or something isn't right with the lighting, the audience doesn't go home and say, wow, that sound man really messed up or that lighting, oh, it's really, you know, the lighting guy was really... They say, Anita Baker, well, that wasn't that great. And meaning if the sound is not right. And I never forgot that because I said, well, you know, that is someone who is really dedicated to making sure that the audience gets their money's worth. And that is important. And those songs weren't just like, you know, three-minute, you know, pop hit singles, nothing wrong with those. But these were like, you know, you, you can't be like messing up if you're going to do the live been so long. You can't mess up with the live version of Good Love. You can't, you can't mess with those. You've got to make sure that they're right on. And I, I understood it. I mean, I think a lot of some people didn't, you know, like, oh, why is she being so, you know? She's like that to this day for the fact that um, she just did a show right before Christmas. Mm. Uh, she sold out the Staples Center. So it's so wow, funny you're talking man. to Beverly Theater man, when wow. in 2019 she saw out the Staples Center, which shows you not only did her fan base travel mm -hmm. through time with her, mm -hmm. but so did their children and their nieces yeah. and nephews, yeah. and in some cases, grandchildren. Yeah. And when she's um, producing mm -hmm. the show, when she's rehearsing, mm -hmm. she blocks out everything. Because mm -hmm. I had to talk, um, we were talking details on certain things, and she didn't call me back. I'll talk, let me take that back. She didn't complete the text messages because she was so enthralled in her production meetings. Yeah. And she's very committed to that to the day of the show. No phone, no nothing. Mm -hmm. She doesn't. She blacks out. And it's all about the show. It's all about what she goes on stage and she gives her fans. Yeah. And you're right. Some people take that as a control thing. Mm -hmm. However, she's still known for giving one of the best shows on the stage till this day. Well, how about she's giving you the best that she got? Right. <laughs> <laughs> till this day. And this is someone who uh -huh. was, what, um, 33 mm -hmm. years removed from that album, mm -hmm. from that mm -hmm. first album? Mm -hmm. 33 yeah. years removed, and she's still releasing great content on stage. Yeah. She still has that same mind state, which is great, because you have some artists that they'll trust a sound person, and... They don't want to hear anything about it until they're handed the microphone on stage and they do their thing. Mm -hmm. No, she's very in tune with it from, mm -hmm. okay, I'm thinking about doing a show in this city for what the dynamics are mm -hmm. in the arena to everything. Mm -hmm. She's very detailed about all these things to this day mm -hmm. from songs that was written decades ago. Yeah. So she still has that. And you, you see that. Um, you hear that story a lot um, from artists I know. Bruno Mars is very particular on yeah. something like that with his band to make sure that the sound checks are right. I was just watching a documentary on Tony, 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 and they were telling, um, I read, I'm um, read, but I watched how they were saying they had nine-hour rehearsal days. So when they got on stage, everything, they were just hitting notes, and they were in groove and in sync with everything as mm -hmm. if they'd been doing it for years, and they were like that during their first shows. Yeah. So you still have people who care about their quality for their audience, but for themselves as well. Because oh, if they yeah. give a bad show, yeah, the audience is going to say something, but they're going to feel like they're not yeah. as good an artist exactly. as, they, as they could be. Yeah. So, yeah. Definitely. Well, the one thing also I want to say, you know, uh, 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 
I know we started with Rapture and we talked a little bit about giving you the best that I got. But I also, and I also want to say that, um, you know, my personal favorite album of Anita's, as an entire album, is Compositions. Um, and um, I just, I mean, Fairy Tales, Love You to the Letter, uh, Lonely, and my favorite, No One to Blame, which is only my favorite for personal reasons. <laughs> and I think we've all, we, we, we've all had situations in our lives where uh, if I miss this, sure would be a shame. Mm. I'm quoting from the lyric. You know, in other words, you know, we've all had those people in our lives who we, you know, wow. If I let this go, the person go, you know, I, there's no one to blame, you know. But I love that. Anyway, I, I kind of went off on a little riff there. But anyway, the point being, is I, I was around Anita at the time of her uh, making that album. So I was very, I remember, and it's a very quick, short story of how she, um, uh, we were, we were looking, we were working on possibly uh, writing a song together. We had done some back and forth stuff on it. But anyway, the bottom line is that we ended up um, um, meeting up and, and uh, I think it was in, around Christmas of that year. But anyway, well, here's what I remember. She remembered that I didn't drive and I was going to be getting a taxi to go home. Or, mm -hmm. or, or, or I actually had a taxi account. But <laughs> I, I kind of bust every now and again. She said, well, do you want me to, can, you, can I give you, can I give you a ride you know, to where, to, to where you know? I said, sure. So we ended up, um, and, and during the course of that, she played me some of the rough mixes of what would be compositions. And it was just a joy to hear it. And when it came out, it really was, for me, it still remains, um, you know, I mean, the other albums are brilliant. And, but for personally, compositions, I, there's not, you mentioned, Whatever It Takes with Gerald Levert, you know, More Than You Know. I mean, I know those songs like one after the other. Talk To Me. I mean, just everything on that album for me um, it was really like the, the real essence of Anita Baker. You know, the real, well, she contributed, you know, writing to, she co-wrote, I think, most of those songs. Yeah, most of those songs, and, yeah. And that really was just for me like, wow. And Fairy Tales, man. <laughs> I remember I remember when that album came out, um, my aunt got me the cassette. Okay. And what I remember the most about it was I got into jazz a little bit at that time too. Yeah. And what I took away from that album was I, I felt like I was listening to a jazz album. Yeah. And the way Fairy, Fairy Tales was like a seven or nine minute song. Yeah, somewhere it's the last there. song on that Yeah, album. and it just had these movements and George Duke doing his thing. Yeah, and it was man. just such a great song. And so I spoke with her mm -hmm. and we were talking about, you know, albums and jazz and things like that. And mm -hmm. um, she, she was saying how she loved to one day had done a jazz album. And I say, yeah, because compositions could have been a jazz album if some singles were changed around. She said, oh, my God, yes. She yeah. said that was the kind of the attention yeah, yeah. Of, of doing it that way. She said she wanted it to feel that way. Mm -hmm. And it does feel that way. But again, she took that formula from Rapture. Mm -hmm. She took the brightness mm -hmm. from giving you the best that I got. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like she... Almost returned to Rapture a little bit on that, but yeah. she went deeper into jazz. Yeah. And again, that was another platinum, almost double platinum album. Mm -hmm. 
um, numerous hit records, yeah. great tour. She just kept going with her sound. And she was still, by 90, hip-hop was way up there. Oh, you had yeah, second totally. albums from Key Sweat, from Guy. Um, you, you just started seeing the birth of what hip-hop and R&B can be. And she still stood her ground and sold just as many records yeah. as the biggest R&B records that year. Absolutely. She still stood her ground. And and I, I don't ever see her changing that. I, I think she stands her ground now when it comes to her shows and how she's perceived. And um, it's not so much of a controlling thing. All it is is taking those things that made those albums so good on her mm-hmm. decisions mm-hmm. and putting it into everything else with her career. I think she feels... If I'm going to continue doing this, I need to do this on my grounds and my way because it's always worked for me. And if you go to any shows in the last couple of years, it still resonates the same way. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to go back to where we started somewhat uh, with Rapture, I mean, I I think that, you know, there are, I think you said and and we agreed that there are are artists who have this one album. I mean, yeah, they make other great albums. But and usually there's this one that really is the one that sets it all up and the one that captures everyone's imagination and that can never be duplicated. Yes. And I'd say I would say that the thing I want to say also is that yeah, in retrospect, if we if I think back to that first conversation I had with her in the Electra uh, offices and you know before just before Rapture came out. Um, I don't think she, in fact, I know neither she nor I nor anyone else at a lecture or anywhere had any idea that it would take hold the way it did. I mean, it, if you think about it, the, the probably expectations, it would do all right. And again, given the landscape, the musical landscape of the time, given the who was being listened, who people were playing on the radio, I don't think it was predictable that it would become this, you know, Grammy-winning, multi-million-selling, global, iconic album. Uh, and it really is. Uh, I think that's the best part of the sto- of the of the story of Rapture that it was un- unexpected. And once people, and yet, even though it was unexpected in one sense, once it happened. You know, and you, it just set a particular. It, it set Anita on the, on the, on that pathway as, as a recording artist and performer. And the other thing is, there wasn't anybody. See, there's one other. Th- I want to say just one other thing because I'm thinking about it now. I remember when Tony Braxton's first album came out, and there's a song on there called Seven Seven Whole Days. Seven whole days. Yes. Say seven long days. Seven whole days. And I remember that uh, that particular record also because um, you know I also did Tony Braxton's bio for the album La Face and and um, that one song sounded like it it should have been an Anita Baker song because it was right in that whole tradition of what, but so the point I'm making is if there hadn't been a rapture. That song would never have, seven whole days would never have been on Tony Braxton's album because it right. wouldn't have it wouldn't have they've been like why would you do that and I think in some ways that 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 first Tony Braxton album was kind of geared towards the idea of her being the younger that 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 generation's quote Anita Baker so to speak but really yeah. 
I'm saying that even though Anita Baker was, of course, still a rat, I mean, you know, still making records, still performing. So it's kind of interesting that, she, but there isn't any, there aren't that many other singers, or if any that I can think of, that came after Rapture who did anything that was even similar to that. That's true. I think the album that she came out with, a lot of artists, their catalog built up to an album like that. Yeah. But to knock that out the park, That's your right. first major label album is very, very rare. I mean, I, I think of one of my favorite album artists of all time, Stevie Wonder, mm. who in that masterpiece period mm. where it started with um, Music of My Life. Music of My Mind. Music of My Mind. Wow. From there to where Songs in the Key of yeah, Life. Yeah, yeah, all those in the between. Yeah, yeah. When he did Songs in the Key of Life... It was the epitome of his powers. Yeah. With Rapture, she started at the epitome yeah, of her powers. Yeah, yeah. And that's very rare. That is very, very, I mean, in rap, because I'm very familiar with that in rap, sure. it's similar to Nas's Illmatic, okay. where this 20 yeah. year old kid mm -hmm. created what a lot of people call one of, if not the best rap album of all time. Wow. So he came at 20 years old and created this masterpiece. It would be in a similar way of how Anita came with this Rapture mm -hmm. album and inspired. I mean, Mary J. Blige, which is a totally different style of what Anita was doing, mm -hmm. did Sweet Love yeah. at her audition That's for her right. Uptown That's right. contract. That's right. Yeah. So yeah. it was it was spinning off Mary. Um, Tony came kind of the same way where she had this real nice soft R and B mm -hmm. with some up tempos during a time where. TLC and mm -hmm. and all of them were really doing a hip hop R and B hybrid, and here comes this R and B mm -hmm. girl. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of the same thing, but she did unintentionally spin off yeah. a lot of vocalists that were comfortable in doing what they wanted to do, long as it was done right. Yeah. And for that, she will always get credit. She's um, a, an an adopted auntie and stepmother of so many um yes. from Layla Hathaway to Fantasia oh, yeah. to um someone who was around at the same time she came at but she calls her auntie Regina Bell there's yeah. a lot of artists that was inspired by yeah. her both musically and how she handled her business mm -hmm. so yeah um hats off humongous to the classic rapture album from Anita Baker amen yes sir all right, Doron, thank you. Oh, another another great time. So. That's right. Thanks to David Nathan and Doron Bowers for joining us today. Listen for more special guests from David's Los Angeles trip coming over the next few weeks. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on your favourite podcast platform and visit us over at soulmusic.com for daily updates about your favourite soul and R&B artists. I'm Bethany Dawson, thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time on My Classic Soul.